I mean, we, we couldn't, we could not ask for a clearer illustration of global interdependence. Uh, I suppose. And at the same time, it's quite ironic that the reaction has been very much a rise of nationalism in some ways, a kind of every country for itself type of approach. We knew a pandemic was coming at some point. It's kind of why we have the WHO. We've had various smaller scale tests of the international response to an infectious disease outbreak. Ebola in West Africa being the most recent pandemic. After that, various reports criticised the WHO and Suri Moon, co-director of the Global Health Centre at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, wrote about that for us in the BMJ and talked about it in the podcast. Um, Welcome back to the podcast today, Suri. Thanks very much. Glad to be here, Duncan. so I just want to kind of pick up really on what you you talked about with us before. This is now a pandemic. Um, and uh, when the, the West African Ebola outbreak was happening, the WHO was criticised about its delay in actually calling that a pandemic. Now, the first COVID-19 um, reports came out of China at the end of December last year, but it took until the 11th of March and that... By then, we'd already had, you know, over 100,000 known cases in a, over 100 countries before they did declare a pandemic. Do you think um, they're going to be in for the same criticism again this time? Uh, it's, it's a really important question. Uh, I think the first thing is to uh, clarify two different terms that carry quite different meanings um, from a technical or more legal perspective. And, and the first is um, public health emergency of international concern uh, or, or a fake or a, you know one way that we can uh, describe this in shorthand is basically declaring an emergency and uh, WHO declared the uh, COVID-19 outbreak an emergency on January 30th of this year um, which was relatively quickly after first learning of the cases from the Chinese government in late December uh, and I do think that WHO's response has been uh, like night and day when we look back uh, six years ago to what was happening with the uh, West African Ebola outbreak where they de- delayed for a number of months before they made the emergency declaration. That was in August of, of 2014. Um, there's been quite a lot of attention on whether WHO, um, since January of this year, whether WHO uh, agreed to use the word pandemic to characterize uh, the ongoing the ongoing uh, epidemic. And I think that um, one of the key distinctions to be made is that a, an emergency declaration is something that WHO is authorized to, to do through the international health regulations, through the, the main international treaty that was negotiated to help the world manage outbreaks of infectious disease. The word pandemic is not um, one that has a specific technical or legal um, meaning for WHO, uh, but, but I believe that WHO uh, waited to use that word um, until until uh, about mid-March because they had run out of uh, alarm bells that they could ring. So on January 30th, when they did declare an emergency, they were, I think, quite urgently trying to wake up governments to prepare. Uh, and some governments did respond, some governments did get ready, but many, uh, many did not. I think many governments... Uh, including uh, many of the, the you know the most developed countries in the world did, did not think that something of this magnitude could happen on their own soil. 
And mm. so WHO had at that point, the, the, the emergency declaration is kind of the highest level alert that they can sound. And when they had used that tool, what else was left for them? And, and I think the um, media really began to ask, you know, is this a pandemic? Why don't you call it a pandemic? It became this, this interesting back and forth between, between the media and WHO. And they, um, I, I think when they, find, they, they held back on using the word because they wanted to try to um, uh, reserve that last tool that they had. Mm. Uh, and, and when they did, what's quite interesting is that although it does not have a specific legal meaning, governments did react. I think it did uh, hit the headlines. Uh, a number of governments did wake up when the word pandemic came out of Dr. Tedros's mouth. So one, one um, takeaway from this is the incredible uh, importance that WHO has as a trusted judge an arbiter of um, the severity of what is going on uh, and that the world really does look to WHO's judgment. And these are really judgment calls. It's not about a number or an automatic threshold that when you cross it, it's an emergency. When you cross it, it's a pandemic. It really is much more of a judgment call. Um, and, and in this case, what we see is what an important role WHO plays in helping the world to understand what is going on, how bad is it, what do we need to do, um, uh, et cetera. Mm. And and as you say, that sort of not technical but almost political response to or emotional response perhaps to, to calling it a pandemic sort of links to the next bit I wanted to talk about, which is um one of the the problems that was identified um during Ebola was the kind of lack of in-country capacity um to respond to to the outbreak on on treatment, on testing. But what this really has highlighted is that kind of around the world, the lack of, of preparedness, lack of capacity to, to deal with this, which seems much more like a, a political problem than an economic one. I think, I think it's fair to say that it's a, a political uh, issue. It's an economic issue. It's a health issue. Um, the, the degree to which any country is, is prepared. Uh, because you do need political leadership to say this is an important priority and we will invest our resources in it. Uh, and many governments, as, as we're seeing now, of course, did not do that despite lots of calls um, on the part of the health community that this was an important insurance policy to put in place. Um, I, I, I don't want to underestimate how um, how challenging outbreak uh, you know, detection and response is in countries that are some of the poorest uh, in the world. I, I do think that is a very significant Issue. It's an ongoing issue, and I think it's one we're going to see um, illustrated in much more stark relief in the weeks to come as the epidemic uh, spreads and, and matures uh, globally, and including in some of the poorest countries. Um, at the same time, what we know is that it's not only about wealth, right? It's not that wealthy countries are necessarily uh, better prepared, because what it comes down to is having the um, expertise, the organizations in place, the uh, uh, protocols, having experience, having uh, people who are lined up and ready to react quickly when they need to. Um, and what we're seeing in the, the ongoing outbreak is that it also really needs a strong um, central authority, meaning a strong national government to take charge. Uh, certainly, this is not a crisis where we can leave decision-making up to markets or we can leave decision-making up to uh, individuals or even to subnational units like provinces or states or uh, here in Switzerland, cantons. And, and what I'm seeing um, as a trend across the world is that many governments 
are at, at national level and even at the EU and at a more regional level, governments are taking a much more central um, role. This also, of course, has risks and downsides um, where we have, for example, authoritarian governments who may use the epidemic as a, um, as a, uh, a cover for a power grab. I mean, there's also definitely huge risks to this, but I think that, uh, yeah, we, we see it in a number of places, and I think some of the human rights violations that um, are taking place and that will continue to take place under the cover of uh, um, of this epidemic are, are going to be severe, and we don't even have a clear picture of the extent of that yet. Um, but at the same time, it is clear that a effective public health response does require an effective um, and, and strong government response, and that's both on the public health side uh, as well as on the economic side, as, as we're seeing. Um, and so it's, it's not only about how wealthy a country is, but also how prepared is a country to put in place rapidly all of the steps necessary to, um, to respond. And of course, you know, the wealthiest country in the world right now, um, the United States, is really struggling to, to control uh, the ongoing outbreak. It is truly, I think, the, the epicenter right now of the, um, of the coronavirus pandemic. Hmm. And I suppose uh, as a microcosm, the, the US is a way of uh, looking at what's happening around the world. There is disparity in, in individual states' response to it, and you know, pandemics don't respect borders. So there feels like there needs to be better coordination you know, within a country or, or internationally um, about the response. And we've there is such disparity going on. You know, people haven't listened to to what the WHO's um, recommendations have been. Yeah, I, I do think we we need much more international cooperation to address this epidemic uh, effectively. I mean, we we couldn't we could not ask for a clear illustration of global interdependence. Uh, I suppose. And at the same time, it's quite ironic that the reaction has been very much a rise of nationalism in some ways, a kind of every country for itself type of approach. And I think there are um, rational and evidence-based reasons why, for example, countries are closing borders um, and, and need to do that. So I'm not talking about travel restrictions per se, but I am talking about, for example, countries hoarding um, medical supplies, whether we're talking about drugs or masks or other personal protective equipment, we're going to see the same thing happening, I'm sure, I, I fear, with vaccines, uh, with diagnostic chemicals and, and tools. Uh, and so we, we do have a real problem of um, the, the, the you know, return of the nation state in, in some ways at a time when we, we need strong nation states, but we need those nation states to be working much more closely with each other. Um, but at the same time, I, I want to caution against arguing for a uniform global response, because I do think we are currently uh, engaged in a massive experiment. And what I mean by that is that nobody uh, knows with great certainty what is the best way to control this epidemic, and nobody knows what is the best way in a particular context. And so what might work in South Korea, for example, when they catch the epidemic at the early, more concentrated phases of um, of an outbreak may not work in uh, in France or in Germany, where the epidemic has already progressed beyond just a few clusters of, of cases. Or what might work in um, in Switzerland, uh, a small and, and wealthy country, uh, really might not work in India or in Kenya, where we're seeing, for example, in India, 
many people who are unable to feed themselves because they have to go out and work every single day in order to just put food on the table and to feed their families. So we here in Switzerland, for example, have a very strong social safety net and there's food in the stores. And even if there are, there's an urge to go out and, and to uh, you know, empty the shelves, um, people aren't doing that because they have confidence and, and they rightly have confidence that the supplies will be there. Uh, but in places where the supply chains or the money simply is not there or the safety nets in terms of employment, um, you know, salary support, a strong uh, fiscal ability to put in place economic stimulus measures. I mean, this is certainly not the case for most countries in the world. You know, wh what are the trade-offs that are being made for, uh, you know, as as we're um, as governments are implementing quite severe lockdowns around the world? I think these are these are decisions that have to be made country by country, taking into account the specific context. And every country is making very difficult. Um, calculations, frankly, cost-benefit calculations, political calculations on what is it that they can best do and feasibly do while not making the, um, you know, the, the, the suffering worse than, than it needs to be or than it already is. I think these are really hard questions. And so when I see different governments taking different approaches, um, of course, in some cases uh, where it's obvious, for example, that the push to do testing, I think, makes perfect sense. We, we need to have that. And that makes perfect sense. But when I see governments taking different approaches, I, I also think there's a very valuable um, uh, diversity of approaches that is happening to some degree. And we have to be following very carefully how are governments handling this differently? What can we learn from every single country? And what can we learn in real time? And we don't have time to stand back and do randomized controlled trials or do super in-depth academic data collection and, and analyses. We, we have to be drawing conclusions as best we can from evidence as it's generated from different countries um, you know, on a daily and, and a weekly basis. So it's an incredibly, I think it's an incredibly difficult situation the world finds itself in. And it's an incredibly difficult situation that WHO finds itself in because, of course, everyone is looking to WHO for guidance and advice on what we should do. And yet, probably there is not a, a one-size-fits-all solution. And so when they issue guidance, um, they, I think they, they are being careful and they have to be quite careful that they don't say, this is the way every single country should be um, attacking this, this epidemic. Sure. I mean, it feels, feels like maybe the SDGs or something were an attempt to start pulling you know, those economic, social healthcare, other factors together and, and 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 recognize that sort of interconnectedness of it. But this is really, you know, straining that system. Do you think the way in which the WHO does work with the World Bank, with with the UN, things like that, is is coordinated enough to really to really examine or, or tackle some of the, the, the things that you just identified? Uh, I do think that as as with the West African Ebola crisis, um, it has taken uh, us as a health community, I would say, some time to truly appreciate uh, the magnitude and the enormity of this crisis, which is absolutely um, something that extends far beyond the the health sector. And and that was the same case in in West Africa, where um, and, and with many outbreaks that they, they rapidly can spiral, of course, into humanitarian crises, into political crises, and into economic crises. And yet we're, we're constantly playing catch up uh, to try to put in place 
measures that attack not just what's happening from a medical or health perspective, but from a whole of society approach. And I think we've seen the same thing happening with the coronavirus, um, with the coronavirus uh, epidemic, that the UN as a whole uh, has been playing a more forceful and active role, but but uh, probably with with some delay. And uh, I'm not well placed to to comment on how well the internal coordination is going among UN agencies. We know it's a challenge uh, always in any emergency. Uh, we always hear complaints during and after about um, the need for better coordination. So I, I imagine it's no different now, but I, I really can't comment um, from a, from a firsthand perspective on that. Um, but I do think this is this is an area where this is a crisis where we need not only the UN to to play a much more robust role, but we need the major powers to really come together in an unprecedented way. And I think that the um, the communique from the G20 uh, meeting that happened last week was highly encouraging, and that is the first major signal that I saw that governments that are relied upon to be global leaders uh, are beginning to look more at the international level. Uh, and that they're looking across a whole range of issues from the need for economic um, stimulus and safety nets to the need to identify ways to uh, rapidly ramp up production of masks and medicines and um, and diagnostics, uh, to need to have you know, shared approaches to uh, information sharing and research. I mean, really across a whole set of issue areas, the, the G20 communique, I think, was highly encouraging. Now, it's a it's a political statement. It's a it's a statement of intent in many ways. Um, we don't have the mechanisms in place yet to implement most of what the G20 said it would do. But I do think that um, the getting major governments together to pool money, to pool information, um, to pool manufacturing capacity, and to agree to share some of these resources is hugely important. And and in many ways, this actually extends beyond the UN. And what I mean by it extends beyond the UN is that the UN uh, has been intentionally starved of um, authority and starved of resources over the last 20 or 30 years. And so it is not today um, in a place to mount the kind of robust response that is needed at the global level. It can play a, a very important role, but the UN relies on, of course, at the end of the day, governments for money, for authority, for information. And WHO is no different. It relies on governments for uh, all of those resources. And so at the end of the day, it really is in the hands of, um, of uh, government leaders to say, we, we commit to working together. We commit to sharing information and resources. And as I said, the, the political intention to do that, I think, was was very encouraging um, last week. I, I worry that we cannot put in place the mechanisms to do it fast enough, that the virus is moving much faster than our ability to um, to cooperate with each other to to stop it. And on that, it does seem like there are some things that we knew we know will be needed to be done during a pandemic. You know, you talked there about uh, kind of inter knowledge generation and sharing. So we'll know that there needs to be some sort of RCT of uh, um, treatment options. We know that there needs to be um, testing coordinated in a way that not just for kind of treatment reasons, but for epidemiological to really work out what the, the pandemic fatality rate is. And it feels like... Um, something 
you know, the WHO is only just now, however, months, many months into this, starting recruiting for this multi-armed RCT of, of treatment. And, you know, it, it feels like there could have been, that could have swung into to place much sooner. I think this is a, a hugely important area and the generation of knowledge and the management of knowledge and, and reviewing the evidence base. This is really WHO's um, bread and butter work in a way. Um, but but I, I would, would not, um, uh, I, I don't agree that they've been slow. I actually think they've been quite fast. Uh, so there was a very important meeting that WHO convened in mid-February, calling together the scientific community and major research funders to try to better coordinate um, research efforts. And uh, overnight, they were able to bring together over 300 uh, of, of the top, I mean, really the top researchers in the world to work together. And as you know, academics don't always like to work together. We're often competing with each other. Uh, you know, who can who can publish first in a, in a prestigious journal like the BMJ? Um, and so for WHO to be able to bring together the community and to instill in the scientific community the need to share and collaborate, I think was, a, was hugely important. We know that there are, um, I, I don't even know what the, the latest number is because the numbers move so fast, but the, there are hundreds of clinical trials happening right now all around the world in different countries where um, uh, where the coronavirus is is spreading. One of the big uh, challenges and the reason why WHO launched the the recent um, you know multi arm trial for for treatments is because not because there was inadequate um, numbers of trials, but because it was very difficult to get those trials to be conducted in a coordinated way so that you could pull together the data from multiple trials uh, and have a meta-analysis that would give you robust results. And because um, scientists and governments were not, in fact, uh, listening to the conductor, so to speak, they were not following um, marching orders, and WHO's limited authority, of course, to give marching orders, uh, but but they they weren't they weren't in fact collaborating with each other to the extent that was needed to generate the knowledge in a rapid and, and robust way and that's why I think WHO in fact was was forced to organize its own multi arm trial in collaboration collaboration of course with governments and researchers um, but it was forced to do that because they needed a way to have uh, uniform or standardized protocols, standardized data, and a guarantee that that data would be pooled and shared so it could be analyzed at a, at a level of, um, uh, you know, at a level of power and magnitude that would allow us to draw some firm conclusions. We see right now some very troubling developments with drugs being used, being added to national essential medicines list without, um, without clear evidence, without enough evidence on whether, and, and we all hope, of course, some of these, um, repurposed drugs will work, but, we just haven't seen clear evidence yet, uh, and yet people are desperate, so they are starting to use whatever they can. And so the need for robust evidence and, and clear conclusions is uh, more urgent than ever. But if governments don't agree to do that in a coordinated way, if they don't agree to be coordinated, um, then, then WHO is pushed into conducting its own research, which is not, frankly, the main role that I think it should be playing. Um, but we saw the same thing happening in the West African outbreak where uh, one of the big questions raised was why is WHO directly involved in a clinical trial of a vaccine candidate, the, the Ebola vaccine that has now been um, approved for, for use uh, several years later. And I, I do believe that one of the reasons they had to do that, uh, and in our review of the West African outbreak, this is actually an area that we commended them for. We were very critical in our review, but we commended them for, for a number of things they did. 
Um, and, and one of the things they did was they said nobody else is doing it. Uh, and where there are gaps uh, on, on the research front, WHO felt that they had to step in. But in a better world, we wouldn't have those gaps. In a better world, we would be more uh, more coordinated in in the way that we're we're generating knowledge. Um, I, I think we can we can translate also beyond the the, the knowledge generation. Um, some of the same themes are coming up when we look at what's going on with diagnostic supply, uh, with um, uh, drug supply with uh, shortages of masks and, and that kind of thing. We need much more uh, global cooperation to ramp up uh, production, to try to get those supplies uh, as quickly as possible to the countries that have shortages. Uh, but we don't have a system for that right now. And WHO has never been given the kind of authority or the budget that would allow it, for example, to put in an order for a billion masks. I mean, who's doing that? Nobody's doing that. There is no institution right now that's been set up to do that. We have Gavi for vaccines. Uh, we have the Global Fund that's allowing countries to repurpose some of their grants to do things. But I mean, the, the, the financial instruments we have to do the kinds of massive um, scale up in production and purchasing that's needed at the global level, they're just, the financial instruments are inadequate. And so those things, those things don't exist. WHO, uh, I think it, it's completely uh, unrealistic to ask or expect that WHO can do that overnight. Um, and yet we have these, these gaps at the international level. And so when it comes to, we're seeing already right now the negative consequences of having um, a near absence of international cooperation. We see that for masks. We see that masks are being manufactured in one place, and we have lots of barriers to getting them to where they're where they're needed. Uh, you can imagine how much more severe the situation is going to be in a few weeks' time when we do start getting some more data from clinical trials on medicines. When we begin to understand which medicines are safe and effective, uh, there is going to be an absolute scramble for and, and total chaos. Uh, among all countries that are going to try to get those medicines as quickly as they can. And, and production of medicines right now is highly concentrated in just a couple countries, um, India and China, including the raw materials for those medicines. Yeah. Um, it's really important. And we're seeing it's not just that, you know, potentially chloroquine, which, you know, we're already seeing the problems for, for people getting it for their arthritis or lupus or, or whatever. But, um, you know, things like we're seeing reports coming out of the States of the lack of um, sedatives for all the people that are being sedated to, um, for intubation and things. And, you know, leaving this to, uh, to the free market to try and solve does not seem like a very good plan uh, at all. So so you're saying that there's nothing in place at the moment for, at that sort of pharmaceutical level to to really coordinate worldwide production in a in a in a sensible way. There's really nothing at the uh scale and with the uh level of political authority that we need to really make that happen. And certainly we can't leave it up to the free market. Uh I think we can't leave it up to uh, nation states alone either. Uh, and, and what we're seeing is a, a very dangerous mix of uh, market forces and I think um, uh, nationalism in, in some ways, uh, leading to shortages everywhere. So it, it's something 
if we think at the micro level of too many people going to the grocery store to buy uh, toilet paper, right? Um, because everybody's panicked. Everybody wants to get something for themselves. Um, that's what we're seeing exactly. It's the exact same dynamic at the global level where every single country says we need those drugs now. We need those masks now. Um, and for, for the few countries that can manufacture it, they're blocking exports, right? They're, they're reserving, uh, the production for their own populations first. And, and in some ways that's, that's fully understandable because every government I think would do the same. Uh, but what that means is that there is, uh, uh, an even more urgent need than ever to have international cooperation, a coordinated international approach. And yet we've not, um, we've not, we as a global community have not uh, created the institutions that are robust enough to do these kinds of things. And the closest thing we have is for vaccines, is uh, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, which has the money um, to drive the R&D process forward and to take a uh, coordinated approach to access and putting in place access provisions so that it's not only the, the richest countries or the countries willing to pay the highest price or the countries that have a, a vaccine plant on their soil who will get access. But even CEPI is struggling to uh, raise enough money uh, and to, to transition from an R&D organization, an R&D funder, into uh, an organization that's also trying to put in place massive production uh, and distribution. Even CEPI is struggling to do that. So you can imagine for drugs that we really don't have anything... Um, we don't have anything that is uh, comparable. When we when we look at the global level institutionally, it's it's very thin, it's very fragile. So this is why I say that the intention among the G20 leaders is um, is is the right intention. And I was I was uh, really highly comforted by the the intention expressed in the communique. But the nuts and bolts of putting that in place are just the you know the foundation is not there. And so people are going to, uh, you know, government leaders are going to have to come up with some very creative solutions to to coordinate um, manufacturing and distribution. And and um, I think the and the very, very political, difficult, politically difficult question of which countries will get something first. So if we pool, if you have an international uh, stockpile, let's say or a pool of supplies, how do you decide who gets um, priority access to that pool? And on, on that, we have almost no ethical guidance. We have no agreement. Um, this was one of the issues that, that did uh, come through clearly in the West African outbreak, where the one question on which WHO's ethics committee could not reach agreement was uh, how to prioritize access to experimental therapy. At the time, there was no proven therapy for Ebola, but there were experimental drugs that were available in, in very short supply. And they could not reach agreement on, um, uh, even within the hardest hit countries, who should get priority. Should it be health workers? Should it be the most vulnerable? Should it be those who have the greatest um, likelihood of survival or those who are, are the most sick? And these are really difficult ethical questions. Uh, my intention is not to say that the ethicists failed, but to highlight how complex and difficult a question this is. You can imagine at a subnational level, if it's difficult, you know, among a population, it's difficult to make those decisions. How much harder that's going to be at a at a global level? Mm -hmm. Well, that's one. <laughs> 
I suppose that's uh, that brings us to to the end of this. But um, sorry, you've left us with uh, a lot to think about and and some big questions to to ask and answer as well. So um, thank you for spending some time talking to us on the podcast today. Thanks very much for having me. You've been listening to Suru Moon from the Graduate Institute in Geneva talk about the WHO's response to COVID-19. As we've said before, we'll be doing a lot more COVID-19 coverage in the podcast. Next week, we have some more talk evidence, this time looking at testing. That's it for this episode. As always, you can find the rest of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. And if you have anything you particularly want us to cover in talk evidence or our wellbeing podcast or anything else, go to bmj.com slash podcast where you can find out how to get in touch. So until next time, take care out there. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Bye for now.